Hey, thanks for being here. So let me ask you something. The subject of death, not the most enjoyable topic, right? The truth is, we're all going to die, and pretty much everyone knows someone who has died. So why is it so hard for us to think about it, let alone accept it? Well, today I've got an incredible conversation for you. We're going to talk about death, really embrace it, and specifically as it relates to scent. Because scent plays a huge role in death and dying in most cultures. And it can play an important role in making us feel more comfortable talking about something that's going to happen to all of us. In fact, thinking about death, embracing this inevitable event, gives us a greater appreciation for life. My guest today is going to share with us how scent is a connection for death and how it can make us feel more comfortable. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest, Nuri McBride. Nuri is a writer, perfumer, and community organizer. She serves as the program curator for the Scent and Society Lecture Series at the Institute for Art and Olfaction. And she specifically explores the intersection of olfaction and death rituals with the Death, Scent Project, and Fragrance History in her monthly newsletter, Aromatica de Profundis. Her professional work focuses on olfactive cultural education, aromatics and life cycle rituals, and the preservation of traditional forms of aromatic preparations. She's also deeply interested in labor rights and power equity in the fragrance trade. Nuri spent the first half of her career in refugee resettlement and torture treatment. She worked primarily in Kenya, Thailand, Israel, and the United States before transitioning to academia and eventually to the private sector. Nuri has had a profound interest in olfaction since she was a child. This interest led her to applying her skills as a researcher to delve deeper into the subject. Eventually, she apprenticed under several perfumers focusing on traditional West Asian fragrance making and distillation techniques. In her community work, Nuri advocates for an end to funeral poverty, improved end of life care for marginalized peoples, and the normalization of universal death care. This is a fascinating conversation, and Nuri is the perfect person to shed light and give new perspectives on a subject we don't really want to talk about. So let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Nuri McBride. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. I want to welcome you to an aromatic life. Nuri, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy and excited that you're here. We're going to talk about a subject that's not something a lot of people want to talk about, this concept of death, this inevitable thing that we're all going to do one day is die. But um, I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation and people are going to learn a few things here today, right? Yeah, I, you know, I can't always guarantee that things are always fun, uh, but they'll <laughs> always be interesting. We'll try to always make it interesting. That's right. That's right. So, but before we get started on that subject, I thought we could start 
where I always start with my guests, um, because this is a podcast about our sense of smell. So I wanted to understand from you, what does the sense of smell mean to you? Sense of smell for me, I think means being able to reach outside of myself. You know, it's, it's a, this, it's a more than any other sense. I think the sense that, uh, makes us spatially aware. It makes us aware of our world, of what's around us, of what's in the air. Um, and it uh, integrates us into this kind of tissue uh, of the world, of the smells, of the, you know, the trees that you're near. You don't have to see them or touch them if, if you can smell them. You know, oh, okay, this, you know, the cherry blossoms are blooming kind of thing. Uh, so it, it, it integrates you in into the world around you. And it's a way that we can reach out and touch in, in a strange kind of way, yeah, yeah. the world around us. And I think that's really special. Yeah, I think, I think that's so true. It's a sense that really connects us with everything. I mean, I, I hear yeah. that all the time, you know, that's a, just a common theme, this idea of connection and connecting with the world around us. So it's really great. Thank you. Yeah. So I like to go way back to start because I, you know, our sense of smell starts in the womb, but we won't go there. <laughs> but I want to go back to um, just kind of go through a brief history of your life's journey to where you are today, because you're doing some incredibly interesting work. And I kind of want the listeners to get a sense for how you got to what you were do you're doing now, because you did some interesting things along the way. But can you start with where, you, you know, where you were born, where you grew up? Yeah, so I I grew up. Um, I, I was born in in uh, Massachusetts, actually. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. No one ever expects that. Um, and I uh, grew up uh, partly in Florida, uh, which is also a very weird place. Most people don't expect. <laughs> uh, if they if they know me. Uh, but my family also moved around a lot, um, and uh, so we had a very kind of international life uh, as, as a youngin. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I had this kind of dream when I was 12 years old, because I was a very disciplined child, that mm -hmm. I was going to become uh, an attorney, and I was going to become a human rights attorney, and I was going to work with refugees. And nice. I uh, went forward with that at, from 12 years old onwards with a kind of steely determination. And uh, it That's was great. not- uh, yeah, no, it wasn't a way. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, I was, I was a very obedient child. So being very, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Um, so being very like disciplined to the law um, was, was something that was pretty easy for me. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I really pursued it as I thought like, you know, this is, this is a cause, like, this is worth everything. You're, you know, this is worth um, doing because it, it's so valuable. And uh, so I worked in refugee services in uh, the US, I, all over in the US. I worked in Israel. I worked in uh, Thailand and Kenya in particular in, in the field. Mm. Uh, I worked for the UNHCR and I also worked, you know, for, I had a long career. I had about 12 years. Mm. Um, and uh, I, did a lot. Uh, a lot of it was doing intake and uh, like the legal clearance for people who were in uh, refugee camps 
that were trying to become part of the resettlement program okay. to be permanently resettled in another country because they could no longer go home and they were kind of stuck in the camps forever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I did a lot of that. I worked with um, survivors of political torture and with children as well, children and families. That was my two kind of areas of specialty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, I got really, really burnt out um, and really kind of disenchanted with the entire system. Really? I didn't feel like I was... I didn't feel like the system that was put in place, it's filled with people that have the best of intentions and people who, who give their, their entire lives for it. Yeah. Um, but the system is really kind of designed to contain. It's not designed to solve problems so people can go home. It's not designed to help people integrate in the country where they're a refugee in. It's yeah. designed to keep them in prison, in camps forever. Wow. And less than 1% of refugees will ever be able to be resettled. Um, so, you know, when people are complaining like, oh, they're gonna come to my country, it's like, they can't, <laughs> oh. they can't. And they, and they have to pay for their own plane ticket. Like, you know, like it's- It's not as uh, glamorous as it seems. Yeah. No, no. And, and you know, it's also, it's, it's really, it's it's very hard work. It's emotionally very hard work. Yeah. Um, you, you don't, you, you're, you're fairly well compensated, but for the amount that you're giving, I don't think you're well compsated. And so I just kind of was like, I can't do this anymore. You basically <laughs> got like, burned out. Yeah. 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 Like beyond, like beyond, like wa- I walking out with like a deaf in one ear and a limp, like <laughs> really, wow. really, it was really just physically, mentally, emotionally, just a lot. Um, yeah. But I felt really guilty about living, leaving, like, yeah. well, this is, you've devoted your life to this and this is valuable and this is worthy and nothing else is. So you shouldn't do anything else. Mm-hmm. Um so I we went into academia because I was like, hey, I, here's a refuge. Here's a right. place for people who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, um, and that was fine. That was great uh, for a while. And, but it wasn't really for me. And uh, I started moving away from uh, what my kind of professional expertise was, which was, you know, refugee law, which is very strict and very formalized and, um, there were other aspects of, of history of anthropology, of uh, human experiences that I was interested in. See, I was actually, I actually had a life at this point. Yeah. I actually was married. <laughs> and, oh, where, you know, where were you living? Where are you living at this point? Uh, but now I was living, I was living in Israel. I'd come back okay. to Israel. Okay. So, so it was, um, yeah, like once again, a person who for a very long time was bouncing around. Uh, I was just talking to my husband the other day how, We've lived in this apartment for seven years in October, and this is the longest I've ever lived in one place. Wow. So it was like, oh, this is, this is it. This is what permanency is. Yeah. Um, But it kind of gave me space to um, pursue things that I'd always been interested in, which uh, was uh, community work and then also uh, sent stuff, which again, not anything anyone expects. Uh, when they're like, oh, you just refugee law, like that's who you are. You're in a bubble. You're just that thing. Uh, so I went on to uh, start to do research in different areas and was like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to pursue academia. I'm done. I'm, I don't want to be in a situation where I, I feel like it's uh, institutions that don't care about the people who are in them. Uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go do my own thing. And, and so I did. And I've been doing that ever since, which is, you know, a complete gear shift. 
from from what I originally started as. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, in a weird way, I bring a lot of the the training and experience of my past into my work with scent. As strange as that might sound, it actually does uh, incorporate in in different ways. So, how did this area of scent first intrigue you? Were you somebody who thought about scents a lot when they were young? Were you engaged with smelling when you were young? Uh, absolutely. Um, I The kind of core memory for me was uh, bugging my parents to buy me perfume when I was like eight. I was very, very young. Oh. Uh, and I was just, I was just also a very hyper feminine person, which uh-huh. also is something people are surprised, like if they just read my stuff. Um, they're surprised to learn about me, but like, no, I'm a real big girly girl. Uh, and I would, I loved Miss Piggy and like oh, Miss Piggy to me was, she was glamour. She was glamour. She was grace, you know, she had a boa. Um, so I had a sticker of her, a, a hidden sticker on the inside of my toy chest. Like this is uh-huh. how little I am. Uh, and I would open it up and I just look at her and be like, one day I'm going to be glamorous, beautiful, like Miss Piggy. So my parents were not going to let me like get makeup or anything like that. So I was like, I want perfume. And for my birthday, they're like, fine. And they bought me a collection of Love's perfumes, uh, most famous for Baby Soft. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, the the creepy, uh, sexy baby perfume of the 70s. That was the... (laughs) the ad campaign but my parents didn't know that they're just like oh this seems appropriate for children right 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 Um, they also got me this little vanity uh with like a a little comb set that kind of gold-plated comb set like every girl had in the in the 80s and uh and I was just sitting there and I have curly hair so I was just sitting there brushing my hair turning it into a huge frizzy mess and spraying myself down with baby soft uh and being like yes I'm a woman And and I am as glamorous and as beautiful as Miss Piggy. Um, This was like a really kind of key. It's it's so silly, right? But it really was like a key moment for me because it was the the act of having these experiences that were so feminine. You know, I saw my mom and my grandmother at their vanities, you know, putting on their creams and things like that. And I wanted that. And scent was a way of accessing that. And it was a way of having... um, a theme or yeah. armor, you know, yeah. uh, you want to feel pretty, you want to feel smart, you want to feel dangerous, you want to feel this, you want to feel that, you know, you don't have to do much, but spray on some perfume and, and that makes you feel that way. Yeah. And so it became something that I, I loved and obsessed over and collected. And it was weird because my mom's friends would come over and like ask my opinions about like what perfumes they should buy. And I was Ooh. like 12. Uh, and I had very yeah. strong, very strong opinions about uh, some of their their choices. Um, so it just became something that I, I loved just personally. And personally, it was always something I was very interested in. And I'm the kind of person when I'm interested in something, I must know everything. <laughs> so it started as like basic stuff. I, I want to know what perfumes are out there in their houses. And then it's, well, okay, well, how is it made? And who makes it? And how does the system work? And then, well, what about the history? What, you know, where does this come from? Where does that come from? Um, and yeah, so that kind of passion veered into um, to what I do now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just imagining those years you were 
working with the refugees in all the different countries. I mean, the smellscapes there and just, you know, the scent memories of different places around the world that you live. There must be some wonderful memories there. Yeah, I mean. Um, or not so much. Yeah, the, yeah well, I mean, refugee camps are hard places. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, they're places where people are just surviving. Uh, but they're also places that can be incredibly beautiful. You know, um, the the Dab camp, which was one of the camps that uh, I worked in, is uh, it's the first of all one of the biggest refugee camps in the world. But it's in rural Kenya, and uh, it's breathtaking. And the the kind of red clayish soil in the acacia trees, it's, and that the way that looks at sunset uh, is really really breathtaking. But when I think of when I think of Dadab, I think of dust. I think of the smell of kind of clay dust, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not necessarily a, a bad smell. It's just kind of a, like a neutral smell. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't necessarily always associate pleasant smells with with my my time in that work. Yeah, um, I guess you're. But right. I would yeah. I would bring a lot of uh, uh, perfumes with me, which most people thought were very stupid. Um, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, why are you bringing these? Like, it's expensive. These are expensive things. Like, they can get broken. Um, and it was just because, like, I need to be able to go home and take a shower and, like, be a human again. And this mm. is how I re-enter humanity. Um, but I learned uh, the hard way not to wear uh, certain fragrances in, in the uh, countryside in, uh, in Africa because it attracts um, large cats. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Good to yeah. know. So Good to know. Yes. Yes. So uh, I, I I learned that uh, not as hard as it could be, but yeah, in an experience where uh, I was walking with some friends in South Africa and um, they were hearing noises off in the, the grass and they're like, we have to go really quickly. And they didn't quite tell me what was going on. And then afterwards, they're like, well, uh, there were lionesses that were like behind us and watching us. And I was like, oh, OK. And then and then afterwards, like, are you wearing? Are you wearing anything? I'm like, I buy by chance I am. Uh, and they're like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> oh, God. So, so I learned I learned that lesson. And now I think you, I don't know when at what point you did this, but you joined a Chevra Kadisha. Is that said correctly? Yeah. Okay. Hever Kadisha. Oh, it's okay. Kadisha. Okay, sorry. Those Jewish CHs are very confusing. Okay. No, <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so my members of my family had been in a uh, Hebrew Kadisha is a, a burial society, uh, and they are there to help uh, members of their community uh, go to their final end. Uh, and they, they kind of vary in how they operate. Some uh, do a lot of like end of life care and you know palliative end care, and then you know, burial and funeral and all that. And others just do the burial. They just run the cemetery. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're all a little bit different, but uh, I had family members that were involved with it. And uh, especially after doing the terribly selfish thing of not uh, working in refugee services anymore, um, yeah. I, I needed something that was bigger than myself that um, I, I felt I could serve. And this was a, a way of serving was to be part of the community and to help um, take care of the community during a very hard time in people's lives. Wow. And you became, pronounce that for me, you became a Metaharat? 
Yeah, Mithaherat. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different names uh, that uh, people go by because they, they're very decentralized. One of the things I really like about Heber Kadisha is so some people uh, uh, call themselves uh, Shomarim, which is uh, guardians, um, but Mithaherat means dead body washer. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. that, 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 that's what it is. So yeah, that's what I, uh, that's what I became. That leads me into the subject of scent and death. Should we go talk about that now? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's talk about death and scent and that connection. So I want to start with a quote you wrote on your blog. I just love it so much and it says so much. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. Um, we live in a culture that rejects scent the same way that it denies the reality of death. Western culture loves an overshowered white must detergent anosmic world because there's a cultural fear that olfaction is animalistic, sexual, uncivilized. When we deny scent, however, and live a hermetically sealed existence, we lose out on the putrid and the divine. I just love that quote so much. And I want to understand what are, what are you trying to say here? And why did you write it? Tell me more. Well, I, I feel, well, first of all, um, is it, is it terrible that I don't even remember that I wrote that? <laughs> no. <laughs> About halfway through, I was like, I did write that. That sounds pretty good. Oh, wait, that is me. Uh, it is you. You wrote it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I feel that there is a, uh, so I'm very, this is maybe way too nerdy for, for this conversation, but um, I'm really inspired by the French philosopher Michel Foucault. Uh, Foucault influences me a lot. And uh, one of the things that Foucault was really fighting against was these idea of like modernity and, uh, you know, that, that, that there's progress and we're cleaning everything up and making everything better and look at how great everything is. And uh, he was kind of a dilettante and he would say, oh, but are we, are we actually making it better? Because a lot of times what we're, what we're really doing is just hiding the reality. We're hiding the reality of the yeah. situation. So people were like, oh, it's so barbaric. In the past, people used to get executed in the town square. But it's like, well, that's the violence on the state on display for everyone. Yeah. And people are participating. People can like throw, you know, cabbage at the executioner, you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's a reality. But when you put people in prisons, now the violence is hidden. You don't have to see it. You don't have to think about it. Uh, when you when you take uh, people who have mental health needs, and you say, well, they're not part of the community anymore. They don't have value in the community anymore. They they need to be institutionalized. You know, he yeah. was writing in the '70s, so you know the institutions were still a big thing. Yeah. They're they're put away. They're tucked away. And that there is this thing called biopower, and it's this idea of um, controlling the biology of people as a form of political power. And it's about uh, shaping experiences to make people better workers, right? So um, uh, having a dress code or having a hygiene code, that's biopower. That's your employer saying, I have the right to tell you how to dress. And I have the right to tell you how to wear your hair. And I have the right to tell you that you're stinky. And I don't like the way you smell and I can send you home. Um, and who had that right before? I mean, it was just ridiculous that anyone could have the right to say that to other people. So I, I see a world where 
lots of people want to frame the olfactive landscape as better, cleaner, greener, more modern. Uh, you know, we're all like above the stench of the past. And uh, first of all, it's usually looking at the past with uh, disdain, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And then it's it's going, but yeah, but are we? Are we actually better or are we just hiding it? Are we, you know, are we actually living in this like rosy, clean world where everyone smells like white musk dryer sheets? Or <laughs> yeah. are we just pushing the kind of gross parts to the periphery of our sensorial experiences and then choosing what we focus on as being right smells and wrong smells? And what do we lose? What do we lose when we lose the stink? You know, we lose yeah. the divine as well. Um, so yeah, so that's probably way too involved of an answer for that, but that's but it, what I was supposed to No, it's, it's perfect because it's also exactly what, the way you just described it with olfaction is also what's happening with death, right? We try to not think about it. We try to suppress it and, you know, we're all going to die, but nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to, um, connect with the idea of death, right? Yet many people have, unfortunately, over the last two years had many connections with death, obviously with COVID. There's many people who've been connected to people dying. I just love that, that connection that you made. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. I sometimes, um, I don't necessarily see that, I don't think people are afraid to talk about death per se. I think that people are afraid to have honest um, and open conversations about it because we talk about death all the time. Like our movies are full of death. Our, our TV shows are full of death. People love to watch grisly deaths. I mean, the, the uh, popularity of murder podcasts is true. shocking to me. Shocking to me. Uh, you know, as someone who's dealt with people who have been through kind of the worst traumas that people could possibly go through, yeah. the idea of somebody being like, I really relaxed to listening to somebody say these things. And, uh, and to me, from my background, I'm like, are you a sociopath? <laughs> but many, and I, well, of course they're not, many people find those things relaxing, but they can only find it relaxing if they think the person that the story is about could never be them. So there's this disconnect. So we love to talk about it. It's kind of like the Victorians with sex. They were like, oh, no, we don't talk about it. But look at how much we're not talking about it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of not talking about it. The repression reveals the, the experience. So we talk about it all the time, but we don't want to talk about it in like real tangible ways. We don't want to talk about mom dying. We don't want to talk about us dying. Exactly. Um, yes. And that, and that's like, that's where the conversation is needed most. We, we don't want to talk about school shootings. We don't want to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. To me, yeah. Black Lives Matter is the largest, you know, quote unquote, death positivity group uh, that there is. This is a group that's saying, hey, there's a type of death that certain people are experiencing. It's a bad death and other people aren't experiencing that death. And that that to me is about death and dying but i don't think a lot of people see blm and go that's a, a group talking about death advocacy because it's not kind of fitting the motif i think a lot of people have for that yeah yeah well tell me more about this idea because you're all about death positive so what does that even mean death positive um i i i'm actually not <laughs> i'm actually not for a oh. long time i was no it's okay it's okay for for a long time i did i'd say about 
four or five years, I, I, I really uh, liked this term, death positive. Okay. Uh, because it was like, it was a term that was getting used a lot. There was a lot of really uh, young, interesting people who were working in death spaces and who were advocating in death spaces who were using this term. And I thought, great, <laughs> we're, gonna, we're going to um, talk about things. And um, I've pulled away from that. I probably in like 2017 or so. And I, I don't use that term anymore because I found that it, um, it got really toxically positive. Oh. Uh, and you have people, you had people who were like, if I just follow the sets of instructions, I, I won't be sad. Okay. I, or I won't be, I won't be afraid. You know, if, uh, if I, if I do everything right, uh, I, you know, it, it was very much in the line of like, um, I, I mean, it was, uh, I, I don't know how to say it without like using like the, the dorky terms, but it was very uh, neo, it was very neoliberal, uh, that, that kind of scene and movement. And I don't think most of the people who were in it see themselves as neoliberal, but a lot of it was about um, businesses and like alternative businesses. So they weren't focused on how do we make this better for everybody? It's like, how do we make this special scientific product that will technically be better for everybody if they can buy it? And coming uh -huh. from a very different cultural background and a, a, a different kind of community background when it comes to death care, I'm like, we're not buying, we're not selling anything, dudes. We do this for free. And they're like, oh no, no, we don't. Um, so yeah. what I found was there was this kind of huge culture clash there. Um, and there's these experiences where people feel like if I just do, like, I, if I just do what they tell me to have an eco death or a green death or a, you know, a kind of tweed, death, if I, if I uh, get a wicker casket instead of, uh, uh, you know, a metal casket, it'll be better for the environment and things will be better and then it will be better for me. Uh, and I saw a lot of people in that, that scene, a lot of people who were coming into it, who were, were looking for a path away from the fear of loss mm -hmm. uh, and the fear of death. And yeah. I feel that we do a terrible disservice to people, especially people who are young, people who are kind of new on that road, maybe they haven't lost anyone yet, uh, to present anything that can be a cure-all. Um, I feel that what we need to teach is death literacy. So like what, you know, what to expect when grandma's dying, what to okay. expect when grandma's dying. And then all of us, she's, you know, been on a downward slope for three days. And then all of a sudden she jumps up and she wants to cook everybody breakfast. You know, if you right. don't know what that surge is, um, and that really means that like, you're very close to the end. It's kind of the last burst of energy. Um, it, that can look like she's getting better. She's going to yeah. be fine. Yeah. Um, so like teaching those things and making open honest spaces for grief, for discussing grief, um, discussing loss, discussing anger around death, I think is really, really important. But I, I don't think it should get locked up in um, products. I think there's a place for business. And then I think there's places where things are more important than business. Yeah. And no one should no one should ever not be able to access end of life care, um, whether that's personal care, whether that's medical care, and to be able to um, be buried or, you know, interned in the way they, they see fit with dignity, that that's something that should be available to everybody. And if there is a 
even a dollar that has to be exchanged in, in as a pay barrier, there'll be those who don't have that dollar. And right. so I think as advocates, um, this is way off of from, from smells now, but um, <laughs> I think as advocates, our, our job is to lower those barriers. Yeah. Um, and that's where we do the, the best work. So, you know, I don't care about a mushroom suit. I don't care about a, wick, a wicker casket. I care about, can I, can I lower those barriers for you to access the things that you need when you need them? Yeah, yeah, well, that's really important. I'm glad you mentioned that. So can you tell me, bringing it back to scent then, and just, I guess, I don't want to say embracing death, but, you know, making no, peace. I, I think, you like yeah, the word think, embrace? I think, yeah, I think embracing or, or making peace with it, like coming to terms with it. Yeah, I think those yeah. are definitely fair. You have this wonderful exercise. I don't know if you remember putting this on your blog, but I read through that. Um, an exercise you do where you take a piece of art that depicts an aspect of death. And then mm-hmm. you use aromatics to connect with death. Can you explain that to the listeners, what you do? Because I think that's a really interesting exercise. So one of the things I've really, what I haven't been able to do since COVID um, is I'd like to do death meditations as a workshop. And because I, I think uh, a very valuable way of teaching um, uh, that kind of uh, how to make space in your life for coming to terms with these things, is um, to engage your senses. It, it is a sensorial experience. Dying is a sensorial experience. It is. So, mm-hmm. so having those experiences of, of talking about it, of thinking about it, um, I think when we ground, ground them in the senses, it's, it's more valuable. So I do these workshops, these death meditation workshops, and I incorporate, you know, I have sights and sounds, obviously, sometimes even taste, uh, but smell absolutely. And there's these kind of waves of smell that I will uh, have the people who are participating smell. And usually they're laying down, usually they're kind of just chilling, but what they're really engaging with is their thought and their breath and the scent. And I've never had one of those workshops where uh, the entire room wasn't crying by the end. Wow. (laughs) I've I've had a few people who like held out and I'm like, I'm gonna get you. (laughs) <laughs> why are why are those eyes dry uh but you know uh it you spray a little youth do the smell you know or whatever yeah. was the smell of grandma and niagara falls right, without wow. without fail because scent connects us so strongly to yeah. our I mean, to our limbic system to our memories it's not uh you know sort of a reproduction of of the experience you know when you think of something you've seen it's sort of a a reconstruction in your head when you smell something you smelled in the past you're not having a reconstruction of the emotion you're feeling that emotion again it's physically happening again it's embodied it's embodied absolutely absolutely it's embodied so i wanted to be able to do these for people that didn't have access to me sitting there and spraying things in in a room with them. So I started um, using a visual aid because I think there's always a good place to start. I think scent can be hard for people to access or to access the language um, with it. So I started using pieces of art where people maybe didn't think about the way that art smelled or what would be the smell of a, of a situation that's depicted there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of them 
I forget which painting it was, but it was like, uh, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi expelling demons. And there's like massive sprays of blood and there's these crazy demons that are like coming out of the, the shadows. It's a really dramatic scene. I think it was a Goya painting. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's just like, you probably never stop to think like, oh, what did that smell like? what would that scene smell like, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to put those up as a way of like, okay, let's start with this visual image and then let's break it down and think about spatially, what does this smell like and what does this mean? And 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 take that moment of sort of, um, you know, personal guided meditation to think about those smells. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed those. I, I I made probably about a dozen of them. I really enjoyed that. I should probably make more. It's been a, it's been like a year or so since I've uh, made one of those. But I think uh, yeah, you should. Really, I yeah, think you should really, because I mean, many people who will want to join. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was really fun, and I think now more than ever, people are are kind of used to situations where they're like, okay, well, let me go to my spice cabinet and see what I have, and yeah, do the best I can with what I have around me. Um, so yeah, I think that it, when I first started it, uh, people were like, well, I don't know what what labdenum smells like, so I can't relate. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little different now. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's the thing about scent. Scent is an analog technology. You need to be there. I need to have you experience that. And yeah. I think that's what makes it so communal, so personal. Um, I can't translate that on a computer the same way. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's so interesting is that you're, you're having people, you know, I have to be honest, I'm someone who doesn't like to think about death very much. I'm not that person that's listening to those podcasts at all, but (laughs) the murder mysteries, but so I, 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 that's why I was, you know, I wouldn't say I'm nervous talking to you about it, but I'm like, wow, I'm actually being confronted with the idea that I have to think about death. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to learn from you. And I think it's a really good exercise to do, quite honestly. I think, I wonder how I would, you know, just evolve as someone thinking about death more if I were to do that exercise of looking at pieces of art. There's plenty of pieces of art out there <laughs> depicting oh, death, yeah. right? So uh, and even ones that you may not necessarily think of. Uh, as being depicting death, but uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of Flemish still lifes, and there is oh. death all through Flemish still lifes, because they're they're sort of a commentary on opulence. So it's usually like a table setting, right? You have yeah. big, beautiful flowers and oysters and fancy dishware, but it's like knocked over, like <laughs> as if someone like. And you go, go and like Google Flemish still lifes. It's amazing. Yeah. I People think they're so boring. I, I think they're the, the most dynamic kinds of paintings because it, it looks like a scene where very rich people just got terrible news and picked up and ran. It's a, it's a aftermath scene. It's a scene after the action has happened and you have to, to dig it apart. And you have to look closely. Like, what does it mean that the, the food's kind of rotting? Why would food on this opulent table be sitting there and rotting? Like it would be days later, but it's on this plate. Um, yeah. So sometimes you don't need to have the really strong momentum or you don't need to have the skull in the picture to remind you like, hey, all of this stuff is, is great, but it's temporary. It's, it's, you know, things can happen quickly. Um, and to me, like, I think that that's a, I think that's the, the power and the purpose of those paintings.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to talk about that idea, this brevity of time and the idea of immediacy of pleasure. So why is that so important? So one of the things that I think makes people really um, frightened to talk, and there is an, an element of fear, and I don't think that should be discredited, but people are frightened to, to talk about death and dying because they you know, oh, I'm going to be a bummer. I'm going to upset people. Um, I, or they don't even want to think about themselves because it's like, oh, it's just going to make me sad. Uh, but the reality is, is that when you really delve into this and, and do work in this space, um, it gives you such an appreciation for life. Yeah. Uh, what I what I do with working for the Hebra Kadisha, you know, I, I mostly prepare bodies. So, you know, we're going in, it's a group of three people. We take it very seriously. We work in silence. Uh, we all know what we're, besides the prayers, we all know what we're doing. Um, it's a, a very grave, very focused, very intentional time that we spend with this body, collecting them, washing them, shrouding them. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's powerful. I can't yeah, describe yeah. it, but that it's, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And uh, when we're finished, we usually go to the mikvah, which is this, uh, it's a religious bath. Because uh, we're, it's, it's hard to explain, but we're not, we're not physically dirty, but this idea of like, you gotta wash this off. Yeah. You, you gotta, you, you, you've seen, you've, you've looked into the face of the abyss, you gotta wash this off. Yeah. So you go in, you, you get all naked, you, you plop down in this water, a lady goes kosher. Uh, <laughs> to say that, to say that you did it right, because this is, this is how this world works. But for me, one of the greatest moments of life is walking out of that mikvah, because I've looked death in the face. I may have sat with this person why they died. I, I was there for them in that moment. I, I fully embraced the gravity of the situation. And now I'm re-entering the world and the world of the living. I've been in the world of the dead and now I'm in the world of the living and the sun is brighter and the flowers are more beautiful and things smell better because I don't have forever. Yeah. This person thought they had today and they didn't. So this is what we have. We ha we're, you know, and I think Neil Gaiman said it the best, we're given a lifetime, no more and no less, yes. but we don't know the length of that lifetime. So you know, you, when you come to terms with this, you realize that, you know, time, time is short, time is short for all of us. If we live a hundred years, 70 years, if we live 20 years. Um, so there is, there is this reminder, not of a fear of time, but the reminder that there is a brevity to that time. And there should be an immediacy of pleasure because why are we here? but to be kind to each other and to love each other and to create beauty in the world and to appreciate beauty in the to world. To experience life. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we all have to face hardships 
and troubles and will, you know, no matter how privileged a person's life is, there, there will be pain in that life. That's part of living. But uh, if we have these moments, these little tender moments, you know, the kind of Proustian moments with the, with the Madeleine, um, of, of finding joy and pleasure, then, then you should take them with all the gusto that you have in the world because it won't be there forever. There'll be a day when there isn't any more Madeleines. There'll be a day when there isn't any more baby soft for me to spray all over myself and be this baby. Yeah, uh, there'll yeah. be a day that, that ends. So you have to embrace that with gusto. And, you know, it, it's hard to find the beauty of life if you're like I'll be a permanent teenager forever and I'm never going to get old and la 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 you know it it can become monotonous and and lose meaning and focus if you don't have this the reality uh so yeah uh the the brevity of time the immediacy of pleasure that's I cannot say that enough yeah I, I think it's it's beautiful and what connects scent to me there is that when you smell something, you're in that moment. You're in, yeah. you're present, just like when you're saying, you know, the brevity of time and enjoy the here and now, what better way to do it than through scent? Because you're actually literally being forced to, to experience the present moment. Yeah, I see sort of intentionally man-made fragrances, whether we're talking about incense or perfume or what have you, um, as a form of adornment of time, that we, we're adorning time, that we're decorating time the way we want to decorate our bodies, we want to decorate our homes, we want to decorate time. You know, we have, uh, when we see how scent is used in, uh, in sacred rituals, uh, it's about creating space and saying this space and this time is special. And you know it's special because we're burning frankincense, right? So it's made this new environment and you're here now and you're present in it now. So you're you're part of this decoration. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes uh, uh, fragrance become, I, I, I get kind of weirded out about people seeing it as an art I'm kind of on the fence about the kind of art side of perfume, but it is definitely a form of adornment. Um, And that's something I really love. Interesting. Okay. Um, Well, tell me more about some, can you, can you share some death customs or rituals and how scent was used or is used today? Yeah, just about every culture in the world whether they employ scent or not, has some kind of scent protocol around death and dying. So it can be things like not wearing perfume or not um, cooking certain foods during uh, a period where someone is dying or someone is dead. But more often than not, it's about employing certain materials to create um, liminal space, that this is a space outside of normal time. This is something different. Uh, you're in this this special place now, this sacred place now. Mm-hmm. So you know we have funerary incense, which it, you know is used throughout uh, Buddhist cultures and uh, Confucianist cultures, and that are are literally part of the use is giving the family something to do 
uh, of lighting the incense and of seeing this smoke rising and, and hoping that, you know, I, I don't want the, the soul of my loved one to stay clinging to the earth. I want them to move on. I, I want them to get out of samsara. I want them to, you know, ascend to a, a greater state of being. And I hope that, on you know, my prayers and my wishes elevate them from that. Um, so it gives people who are mourning a, a visual and an olfactive representation of, of what they hope for, for their loved one. And, and it's a way of, of ritualizing that, uh, that scent use and that connection to memory and culture um, with something as simple as lighting incense. And we see Catholics use uh, funerary incense as well, the love of lilies and other very heavy indolic flowers as gifts, uh, particularly in Christian funerals. This comes out of the same kind of tradition of creating a, a visual and olfactive uh, representation. People usually didn't have like lilies and gladiolias and things yeah. like this that were in their houses on a day-to-day basis. They, these were funerary flowers. So their scent meant something. But I even see it in, in very uh, interesting and strange ways where, you know, I, I've been at funeral homes, con, you know, like conventional American funeral homes, where in like the back room, they'll take a, a log of cookie dough and put it in a toaster oven, like set on a low temperature. So they're not trying to make cookies. They just want that smell interesting. of like cookies are cooking, right? So we want you to feel homey comfortable here yeah. we want to invoke that 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 feeling you're not in a business that's you know half refrigerator units in the back this is a home yeah. um, and creating that space is is really important uh, but we see it in uh you know in islamic death rituals the use of uh camphor uh is usually applied to those places on the the body where people uh, engage their body with the ground when they're uh, doing this a lot when they're praying. Mm -hmm. So on the, like, on the forehead, the nose, the hands, the knees, the toes. Um, and this is all part of connecting people to uh, an olfactory experience and a culture and a sense of community. Um, song can take us uh, to a place of trance and of kind of stepping outside of ourselves. And you see a great deal of song and dance in death rituals. And you also see it, you see a great deal of fragrance use um, in death rituals as well, as, as well as being components that people add to dead bodies. And part of that is, you know, when people think about like Egyptian embalming, there's a lot of like, ooh, about like what the ancient Egyptians did. Yeah. Uh, but like part of, part of it was body preservation. Uh, and trying to mask foul odors. There, there definitely was a component of this, but it, it was so complicated in the way that they did it that it was way more than that. Uh, they were using certain materials and certain parts of the body specifically because they felt like this is going to make this person's spirit smell a certain way in the afterlife. And one of the things I love about Egyptian mythology is that it focuses a lot on smell and knowing people through spell. So if you read like the, the Book of the Dead, uh, a lot of times when 
the psychopomp, the, the kind of god that's uh, taking you into the underworld, which depending on which uh, scroll you use, it's a different person. But they'll say, you know, he is one of us because he smells like the land of the gods. Uh, so wow. this idea of that there is a way that essentially heaven, that's kind of reductive for Duat, but there, this idea of Egyptian heaven, that there's a smell to it. There's a smell to the way Egyptian gods smell. And this person's spirit has been elevated to that smell, to that level of kind of knowledge and truth. Yeah. And part of that was the embalming process and the use of certain aromatics, including things like onion skin. So it wasn't all like gorgeous. <laughs> it was, you know, it was like it wasn't all super great, but or what we would consider super great. But, you know, I think like the use of onion was perhaps um, to give a domestic kind of scent, uh -huh. the scent of food, of people eating. Um, but, you know, it, it ties into spiritual beliefs and to ideas about breath and, and truth and uh, just nothing else comes close. And it's such a universal, you know, people approach death in many, many different ways in different cultures. There's some cultures that are, are like, you have to be with a dead person all the time. You can never leave them. We need 50 people here. And others who feel the act of dying is very personal and yeah. that the person should essentially be left alone. And that may be very cruel in some people's mindsets, but that's the way that culture has structured um, their interpretation of the process of dying. But almost all of them, use something of an aromatic um, and it's very rarely simply just to cover up the smell of the dead body it's usually something about elevating um, the experience for the mourner and elevating the person please maybe you can share with everybody you're doing some work with the institute for art and olfaction and could you share with everybody because i think people might be interested in learning more about some of these rituals and, and traditions. Um, and I think you're doing some work with them, right? Yeah, so I'm very, very honored that uh, the IAO asked me to curate, um, now it's been two years worth of classes uh, for their Scent and Society series, which was a series that had, uh, had begun beforehand as a, a limited run. Uh, and they wanted to bring it back as a, a Zoom class uh, in, in the times of COVID. Yeah. And we, we really wanted to focus on, um, you know, there's, there's a focus on fragrance history that's very focused on the commercial and it's very Eurocentric. It's very focused on um, France, essentially. <laughs> I mean, Europe yeah. in general, but France. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong to that history. It's a very important history, but there's so much more yeah. that's out there and that doesn't get the attention. Um, you know, the, the, the olfactive history of Sub-Saharan Africa is absolutely fascinating. The olfactive history of Madagascar, the olfactive history of Australia. These are incredible, diverse, complex um, olfactory cultures that have all different types of products and rituals and, and ideas and meanings and how they approach scent. And if we just spend so much time, and, and I'm really, I, I believe in uh, being a very community focused teacher. I, I don't like paywalls. Um, I want things to be as accessible to people as possible. Um, 
I want to be able to give really good quality literature and really good quality education to people about the diversity of experiences and how much bigger the olfactive world is than, than just perfume and than just one type of perfume. So Scent Society is, is really about that. It's about making that available. So every month I do a class. Uh, I do a class on death and dying, uh, scent and death and dying. We, we go into it. Uh, I have some other fun ones on like the black death and, you, you know, cool light subjects like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I also, um, I also bring in uh, a guest lecturer every month. Um, and we've had, you know, everything from, people who are talking about their own practices and their own communities to academics who've devoted their lives to preserving elements of um, olfactive history. So our, our last class, which I was really just, just over the moon with, um, is we had uh, Sigrid von Rode, uh, who is an expert in uh, jewelry in Swana, in the uh, Southwest Asia and North Africa. Mm -hmm. She did a class on the uh, use of aromatics in jewelry and in personal adornment in Swana. And it was, I, it was really powerful for me because I see elements of this tradition in where, where I live um, yeah, yeah. that, that are, are dying because, you know, everybody, you know, people don't want fragrance necklaces anymore. They, they want to have, you know, they want Gucci. <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, that's, that's the way the world is working. And I'm not going to, you know, make a comment on that, but I, I am interested in like, in that, that sense of preservation. And, and Sigrid is one of these people who has devoted her life to preserving these aromatic jewelry. And, and um, we presented that class with uh, a lot of people who were like, I've never heard of this before. I never saw this before. I knew nothing about it. Yeah. I'm fascinated. And so to be able to then be go, okay, here's some more things you can read. Um, wow. Like that to me, that to me is everything. Yes. Um, so I'm really happy for the time that uh, the IO has given me and the, the leeway they've given me uh, with the Sen Society project. So, you know, if you want to come learn weird things, come on down. <laughs> yes. I'm going to put a link in, um, in the show notes and also on the webpage. So definitely people can check that out. I highly recommend it. And it's, thank you for doing it because that's, it's all about learning new things. And, and the more you learn, the more you want to know is what I find. <laughs> I'm like more curious than you go into lots of different rabbit holes, but it's, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Oh yeah. We've come to the end. Honestly, thank you so much for talking with me, but I wanted to finish by asking you three questions I always ask my guests. Are okay. you ready for the questions? I'm ready. <laughs> as ready as you'll ever be, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Nuri, let me ask you the first question. What's your favorite smell right now? Any smell in the whole wide world, just what you're, what you're enjoying right now. I mean, my favorite smell right now is probably the, my favorite smell always, which is labdanum. Uh -huh. um, if, if I'm wearing perfume, which is actually rarely these days, because I'm always kind of working on something and need to have my nose clean. Yeah. But um, if I'm wearing something, it's usually just uh, diluted labdanum. Like that is, that is the smell of me. So that's what you'd want on your deathbed, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. I, I have already told my husband that he is to take my good uh labdanum from crete if i die 
and he is how to dilute it appropriately and that a liter of it has to go into my grave in a jar and then he has to pour a liter over my grave and he's like i would rather not thinking that you're gonna die first i'm like okay but just in case you know You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because see, again, he didn't want to think about it. He's like, no, I'm going to go first. But, um, you know, I had another guest on last year, Madeline Kirkhoff. She does some, she works um, in palliative care and she does a lot of aromatherapy work in palliative care. And she also mentioned that one of the best things you can do is offer people their favorite scent, like think, ask people ahead of time what their favorite smell is and then have it there in their process of dying, a lot of people find that very comforting. Yeah, yeah. Any way you can comfort someone who, who is in the process of passing, I think is good. You know, uh, it, it's, it's not always easy. So if they, if they want candy, <laughs> I don't care if, I, if they're 98 years old and I don't care if grandma's diabetic and she's on her deathbed, she wants candy. Exactly. candy. Like just give her candy. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and if, if she likes the smell of, you know, lilacs, we'll, we'll get it for you, you know, because it, it, it's a comfort, you know? Yeah. It's all about making it comfortable for them. Yeah. But here's a, here's a good question for you. So do you have a favorite scent memory that you want to share? Oh, a favorite one. Um, I think one of like the happiest moment, like collectively sent memory of, of my life, uh, besides, you know, Miss Piggy and, and my labdenum is um, the smell of baking bread and uh. like, like challah when it's, when it's come out of the oven and it's uh. still warm. Like to me, that is home and domesticity and family and comfort and uh, just that, that wonderful smell of baking bread that everything's going to be okay if there's baking bread. And then the last question, what would you say are five smells that best describe you? Well, I, as I mentioned, uh, labdanum. Uh, <laughs> that's got to go in there for sure. Yes. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's number one. Um, I'm one of these people, like uh, the thing I love about perfume is that it tells on us so much. Um, because we may want to like physically present ourselves in certain ways, but we olfactorily present ourselves in ways that maybe we don't think are revealing certain things about our character. Yeah. Um, I clearly think I'm the queen of Sheba and <laughs> I should be adorned appropriately. Uh, I, I like anything that's a resin. So uh, uh, frankincense, myrrh, uh, God, uh, I mean, those are kind of my big three is, is, is is wearing those um but birch tar I really love I love smoky so like the smell of like a burning brazier of of incense is like that's what I want to smell like most of the time if I'm gonna if I'm gonna smell it I want to smell like that um which you know clearly I have ideas of grandeur Uh, but but you know to me like those smells aren't masculine they're not feminine it's just like yes I want to I want to smell like there's an element of like the desert to them uh or of like dry places there's a dryness there's a grandiosity um yeah that's 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 usually what I like to smell like I have a fragrance that a um she no longer works so I, I won't name the name of the company but a fragrance that was um made specifically for me it was a custom blend uh that i refer to as satan's wife oh. uh yes yeah, <laughs> uh yeah so it's called satan's wife 
uh, be, or it's partially called that by my husband as well because it is extremely strong and it's all woods and resins and birch tar and it's probably not ether appropriate um, at all. <laughs> and now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not. Um, and uh, I can only spray a little bit of it, like a half a spray yeah. on my abdomen under clothes <laughs> because it will just emanate like you will smell me the next day wow in a room like it's so so incredibly strong um so yeah clearly I have ideas about about <laughs> myself I might look really tiny and modest but queen of sheep so. but you are there and you will be seen and heard and smelled <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> well thank you Nuri McBride thank you so much for joining me today it was such a pleasure to talk to you Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day. <laughs>